0: It's good to be with you here this morning on this wonderful fall day. And as we consider God's leading and God's moving, we're going to study scripture. And we are going to study the issues of the final crisis, fear, EQ, and the final crisis. You know, fear is an interesting word A simple search of fear this morning at about 5.30 a.m. on Google yields in the news section 355 million hits in 0.5 seconds. It is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous likely to cause pain or threat. George Sewell once said, fear is the tax that conscience pays to guilt. Napoleon said, he who fears being conquered is sure of defeat. Fear is a great motivator, yet it also can paralyze us. Why the talk of fear in this convocation weekend that focuses on Christ, emotional intelligence, and the end times? This morning I wonder aloud if we aren't living in a time where fear is motivating decisions that are leading many to be prepared for the final deception of Satan. In the final crisis, fear is, in fact, why we are in this grand mess that we are in today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we would like to understand, we would like to experience the transforming power of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would help us to listen to the leading and the prompting of your spirit today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fear. It is at the very core of the great controversy. While it was envy and jealousy that motivated Lucifer's fall and his original rebellion, fear was the factor that he utilized to expand his rebellion along, uh, uh, his expand his rebellion beyond himself. In Patriarchs and Prophets, on pages forty and forty-one, Ellen White writes these words: "Many were disposed to heed this counsel, speaking of the angels, to repent of their disaffection and." seek to be again received into the favor with the father and his son. But Lucifer had another deception ready. The mighty revolter now declared that the angels who had united with him had gone too far to return, and that he was acquainted acquainted with the divine law and knew that God would not forgive. He declared that all who should submit to the authority of heaven, would be stripped of their honor, degraded from their position. For himself, he was determined never again to acknowledge the authority of Christ. The only course remaining for him and his followers, he said, was to assert their liberty and gain by force the rights which had not been willingly accorded to them fear. The fear of not being able to return into the favor of God. It is that which motivated those angels who had the opportunity to return and be fully restored by God and reconciled to God. It was fear that motivated them to follow through on the rebellion. But then we know the story of the rebellion well, because the rebellion did not stay in heaven. As the rebellion was brought to earth, Eve, you'll remember, partook of the fruit. And Adam did as well. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not. Adam was deceived by something far, far more nefarious. The book Patriarchs and Prophets once again gives us the behind the scenes motivating factor on pages 56 and 57. Adam understood that his companion had transgressed the command of God, disregarded the only prohibition laid upon them as a test of their fidelity and love. There was a terrible struggle in his mind. He mourned that he had permitted Eve to wander from his side. But now the deed was done. He must be separated from her whose society had been his joy. How could he have it thus? Adam enjoyed the companionship of God and of holy angels. He had looked upon the glory of the Creator he understood the high destiny opened to the human race should they remain faithful to God. Oh, how I wish the sentence would end there. She continues Yet all these blessings were li- lost, yet all these blessings were lost sight of. In the fear of losing that one gift, which in his eyes outvalued every other. Love, gratitude, loyalty to the Creator, all were overborne by love to Eve. She was a part of himself, and he could not endure the thought of separation. He did not realize that the same infinite power who had from the dust of the earth created him a living, beautiful form, and had in love given him a companion, could supply her place. But Adam resolved to share her fate. If she must die, he would die with her. After all, he reasoned. Might not the words of the wise serpent be true? Eve was before him, as beautiful and apparently as innocent as before this act of disobedience. She expressed greater love for him than before. No sign of death appeared in her. And he decided to brave the consequences. He seized the fruit and quickly ate for fear. And then this would lead to the encounter in the Garden of Eden. Remember, it says that Adam enjoyed the companionship of God and of holy angels. He looked upon the glory of the Creator. He understood the high destiny open to the human race should they remain faithful to God. But out of fear, he enjoyed the companionship of Eve more than the companionship of God. So much so that as God entered the Garden of Eden, there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, Then the Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? And so he, Adam, said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself how is it that Adam went from enjoying the companionship of God and the holy angels to now being fearful and trembling before God this was never God's desire this was not God's plan So much so that the Bible says 50 times, do not be afraid. 11 times it says, fear not. Over 100 times does it give this idea that fear is not to be a part of the life of the follower of God. Joshua 1.9 says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus said in John 6.20, But He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. The Apostle Paul, writing to young Timothy, said, in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And Jesus, in the sermon And teachings that he gave to his disciples prior to his crucifixion said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Fear. Not a part of God's plan for God's people. Yet, with all of that said, in a tension that I believe exists intentionally in the Bible, the message given for God's people at the very end of time, the message given for God's people to survive the final crisis, the message given to God's people to announce to the world how to survive the final crisis begins with the words... Fear God and give glory to Him. Why are there so many passages in the Bible that commission us and command us to not be afraid and to not fear, yet the final message is to fear God? Is it possible, my dear friends, is it possible that in these last days God is calling upon us to fear Him alone? To not fear anything else. In fact, the word fear in the context of all of those do not be afraids comes in the context of fear of temporal or earthly things. Could it be that just as there were the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Could it be that maybe, maybe that there is a sixth all-important sola for God's people at the end of time who are being reformed? By Him, and that being God alone, and in the Latin, and although I didn't take Latin as a good Catholic boy growing up, it would be the words, Deum Solum timent," fear of God alone. The only positive usage of the word fear in the Bible is to fear God. The many expressions, fear not, do not be afraid, not the spirit of fear, come in the context of temporal, carnal, and earthly matters of which the Bible is clear we are not to be afraid of. The reality is that if we fear anything other than God Himself, it is a demonstration of our lack of trust in God alone. In fact, it is very interesting. In a powerful and quite compelling article, Adventist scholar William Shea wrote about the literary and parallel uh, theological parallels between Revelation 14, 15 and Exodus 19 through 24. Let me kind of break that down and make it clear. William Shea takes a look at a fascinating parallel, a fascinating parallel between Revelation chapter 14 And the giving of the Ten Commandments. Follow me. The opening scene of Revelation 14 occurs where? On Mount Zion. Where where are the Ten Commandments given? On Mount Sinai. There is a difference between the two because the saints of Revelation 14 are on the mountain. But the saints in Exodus 19 could not go on the mountain. However, who were the people that were present? There at Mount Sinai, the twelve tribes of Israel were there. Who were the people present in Revelation 14 on Mount Zion? The twelve tribes of Israel represented as the 144,000. It is no accident that in Exodus nineteen sixteen, prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, a voice comes from heaven, thunder, and a musical instrument. And in the same way, in Revelation fourteen, there is a voice from heaven, thunder, and musical instruments. Those that were on Mount, those were that, that were at the foot of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments were those redeemed from Egypt. Those that stood on Mount Zion in Revelation 14 are those redeemed from the earth. Those that stood at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 are a pure people. Do not go near a woman. Those who stood on Mount Zion in Revelation 14 have not been defiled with women. Those standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses consecrated them and they washed their garments. Those standing on Mount Zion at the end of time are those who have a spotless robe. You see, the victory of the 144,000 in comparison with those given the Ten Commandments will be more complete and final. That is because the 144,000 may join the Lamb on Mount Zion. Ancient Israel could not go up to the mountain. But why is this important and why am I talking about this? When we look at a comparison of the Ten Commandments with Revelation 14, we see three key components, and don't lose me. You see first what is called, in technical terms, the apodictic law. What does that mean? The law that is established beyond a reasonable doubt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or anything in his likeness. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yet the Ten Commandments also then have a historical interlude, and then followed up with what would we call the causetic law. If you do this, then this. If you do this, then this. For example, in commandment number 8. If a man delivers his neighbor money or goods to keep, and it is stolen out of a man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. And that is the exact structure of the three angels' messages. The apodictic law. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. Fear God is in comparison with commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Give glory to Him and not to false gods is a correlation to commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the hour of His judgment has come. It is when that moment comes that God will no longer allow His people to go guiltless. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. What is the point that I'm getting at? To fear God. To fear God is to mean that we have no other gods before Him. And to that we often will say, Amen. Not a problem. Yet the reality is, as many of us have quite a few gods... That come before the God of heaven. I've had the opportunity over the course of the last several weeks to meet Joshua Amirtharaj. That name ought to sound familiar. He is the brother of Samuel Amirtharaj. Joshua is doing a fantastic work amongst the Hindu people of India. But the greatest challenge faced in India... And in Hinduism, and the plethora and multiplicity of gods in Hinduism, is that Jesus Christ would not merely become another amongst the many. And see, this is the challenge we face in the 21st century. God is merely God amongst the many gods we have in our life. It may not come in the form of idols, it may not come in the form of, of idols that we have in our home. Maybe it comes in the form of how we spend our time and how we spend our time dictating what we are in fact worshiping. To fear God is to have no other gods before Him. This is why the Bible speaks about Job. You'll remember when Satan comes to the heavenly council. Coming to and fro. And in Job 1 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? This came in direct response. This came in direct response to God's characterization of Job. You'll remember. In Job 1.8, then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. One who fears God and shuns evil. He's blameless and upright. Why is He blameless and upright? How is He blameless and upright? Because He is one who fears God and shuns evil. This is why the Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is the point? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the knowledge of God. Because it is our conscientious choice to have no other gods before Him. And it is only then when we make the choice that God will be God alone that we will really come to know Him and His character. We have that old hymn, Nothing Between Our Soul and the Savior. Is there really nothing between us and God? You see, the fear spoken of in Revelation 14 is not a fear of trembling, but it is a fear in the sense of coming with reverence and awe to God. And most importantly, it conveys the thought of absolute loyalty to God and full surrender to Him. Have we fully surrendered our will to Him? That there truly is nothing between our soul and the Savior. Have we surrendered relationships? By the way, evident from Genesis chapter 3, even the relationship with our spouse. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. I would be remiss not to simply expand on this for a moment. I am speaking at an institute where there are a number of young people. Young people, I will tell you, to sacrifice principle for the sake of a relationship will only lead one direction. It led to Adam's ejection from the garden and we can read in the bible it will lead and to the rejection of some to the heavenly kingdom are we placing relationships on the horizontal level above that of our relationship on the vertical level with god are we sacrificing principle for the sake of our own pleasure while sacrificing at the altar of selfishness, our fearing God alone. There are many things that we could talk about. Money. Is our relationship with money coming between our full surrender to God alone? Is our relationship with material items coming between us and God? To fear God alone means there is nothing between us and our relationship with God. It is easy to read the Ten Commandments and compare ourselves with the ancient Egyptians or modern day Hindus and say, Oh, I don't have have false idols in my home. When maybe we're driving a false idol. Or maybe the false idol is in our pocket in the form of green paper. Here is the simple reality. When we give in and just do our own things, we let our fears destroy our trust in God rather than our trust in God destroying our fears. And when we do that, we lose what is actually the most important thing In life. In the final great time of trouble. When we are afraid for our personal lives and our spiritual lives. Satan will apply tremendous pressure to get us to rationalize not following God's plan. And to make us believe that by doing our own thing we are actually following God's plan. And let us be clear, that is happening now in the smallest of matters. And as it happens now in the smallest of matters, we prepare our mind and we prepare our heart for how we will stand in those last days. Too often in Adventist circles, I hear people talking about how they will stand in the last day. If you are folding today, you will not stand in the last day. When you boil this all down, the fear of God is purely a matter of trust, And authority. If I do not fear God, I do not trust God. And if I do not trust God, then this is what it ultimately means. That He has no authority in my life. The testimony of the book of Revelation is that those who will stand in the last day are those who have allowed their trust in God, who have allowed their fear of the most holy, almighty God, destroy all the fears that we have in our life. Because if we do not, our fears will overcome us, and will destroy our trust in God, and will lead us down the path of our own destruction. Throughout the Bible... This has been demonstrated. Lucifer deceived out of fear. Saul, Saul sacrificed out of fear. David, David hid his sin out of fear. The ancient king Zedekiah as Jeremiah counseled him to surrender to the Babylonians that were coming, had this recorded about him in Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 19. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, they shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you. So it shall be well with you and your soul shall live. What did Zedekiah do? Zedekiah continued his rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. And in his continued rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, he did not save his soul. He lost it. Jerusalem was captured and destroyed. Let us be clear on the conditional prophecy. Had Zedekiah surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar as counseled by the prophet Jeremiah? And yes, is this a speculative theology? It is a bit speculative. But the scripture seems to indicate that Jerusalem would not have been destroyed. The temple would have not been destroyed. But instead... Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And Zedekiah ran for his life to try to save it. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar caught Zedekiah. And Nebuchadnezzar killed all of Zedekiah's sons and noblemen right before his eyes. And then to assure the last thing That he had ever seen. Then gouged out his eyes. But don't lose sight. You see Zedekiah faced. A revelation 14 moment. During the invasion of Babylon. In the 6th century B.C. All he had to do was yield and trust. And I understand. He's the king of Israel. He is commissioned with the protection of the nation. It's illogical to surrender. But it is the only logical thing to do when God commands it. If we only follow God's command based on our human logic, we will be disobedient at some point. Because there will come a day where to worship on the Sabbath day is not logical nor is it rational in the eyes of humanity. The list could go on and on. Herod. Herod, who the desire of ages seems to indicate was a friend of John the Baptist, imprisoned John the Baptist to make an example of him, but then got himself into a bit of a problem, you see. He promised his stepdaughter anything she wanted because she danced in front of him. And for his mere momentary carnal pleasure, by the way, his mere momentary sick Carnal pleasure. The young girl asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Matthew chapter 14 and verse 9 says, And the king was sorry, nevertheless. It's not good enough to be sorry. Sorrow must be followed by repentance. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths. And because of those that sat, he commanded it to be given to her. Societal pressure led Herod to make a decision to have a friend killed. Think about that for a moment. What would need to be offered to you to offer up one of your friends? many of us will say, that would never happen, Pastor. Everybody has a price who does not fear God alone. The Bible says about Pilate in Mark 15, 15, so Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd. Pilate was fearful of the crowd. And so what did he do? He had the Son of God crucified. So what does all this have to do with mental wellness and the end time? What is emotional intelligence? I should invite Dr. Nedley to come up here and define it, but I will define it the best I can. Emotional intelligence is the ability to understand, use, and manage your own emotions in positive ways to relieve stress, communicate effectively, empathize with others, and overcome challenges and diffuse conflict. Emotional intelligence is commonly defined by four attributes, self-management, self-awareness, social awareness, and relationship management. here's the problem. And why I'm preaching on why I'm preaching on fear, EQ in the final crisis. When we fear something or someone other than God, we surrender the control of our emotional intelligence to Satan, and thus we make selfish, self-centered, short-sighted, irrational. Decisions, And in the final crisis, fearing God alone is the essential component of victory. Revelation 14 does not come in a vacuum. And I know this will be one of the more logical things that you may have yet heard this morning. But Revelation 14 follows Revelation 13. I didn't have to go to school to figure that out. You're all right, Junior. Yes. You're all right. But don't, don't lose sight of this now. What does Revelation 13 talk about? Beginning in verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. Jesus-like, but spoke like a dragon. The devil. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So now we have this, 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 this political system that rises up and points all in the direction of the first beast, and this is not primarily a sermon on prophecy, but we know from prophecy that that first beast that rose from the sea is identified as the papacy. And we know from prophecy that this second beast is identified with the United States, a, a, a country started on religious freedom, but very shortly after its founding was forcing people to worship. This power, both then and in the future, we'll point people back to the beast. And how so? He performs great signs, though that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. A false revival. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Signs and wonders. This is why we cannot base our faith on signs and wonders and miracles. Our faith is based on the word of God telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, And that no one may buy or sell except those who have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Let's get this out of the way real quick. COVID-19 and Corona is not the mark of the beast. Are we clear? If we're not clear, you come talk to me later. We'll be real clear. (laughs) But don't lose sight. What is the motivating factor? What is the motivating factor used by the beast? It is not the motivating factor that operates in God's government. God's government is based fundamentally on love. But this beast operates on a far different principle. It operates on a principle of fear and force. If you do not receive the mark, then you cannot buy or sell, and you might very well be killed. What is the fear and motivating factor? The fear is a lack of provision. And People will often say to me, Pastor, I'll stand in that last day. What happens the first time our stomach starts making a growling noise? What happens when the government denies us access to our Veggie links? What happens when we can only eat those dried kidney beans that we put in the cupboard a long, long time ago? And while I'm being a bit facetious, Let's make it real plain. What happens when your son or your daughter, your grandchild or your great-grandchild says, I am hungry? What will be the motivating factor in your life? Because if it is fear and not the fear of God, we will fold. And then the fear of death And again, I often hear in Adventist circles, I'm willing to die for my faith. Before you can die for your faith, you must live for your faith. You see, our emotional quotient, our EQ, our emotional intelligence that is not founded on a fear of God alone will lead us to make irrational decisions that give us momentary, temporary relief of our pain. Jesus had a quite simple answer for all of these matters. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31, he says these words Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? I don't believe Jesus ever said anything by accident. Matthew 6, 31 to 33 is an expansion on Revelation 13 and 14. He's speaking to us today. When you can't buy or sell, don't worry. Why is that? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Isn't that good to know? God knows that you need to eat. God knows that you need to clothe yourself. God knows that you need something to drink. And Jesus says, He's going to provide this. You've got one thing to do. But you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And then if we start getting really nervous about, well, what's going to happen in the end times? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Temporary satisfaction. Versus eternal glory. Fear God and give glory to Him. Fear God alone. And I will tell you, it's easy to say these things when we're not facing a crisis. I had the opportunity in 2016 to travel to Zimbabwe. And for those of you that aren't aware, Zimbabwe in 2008 and 2009 experienced an economic crisis. They experienced superinflation. And in Zimbabwe, they were printing a $1 trillion bill. It was worth about five US dollars. People would go to the bank and they would cash their check and literally need bags to bring things home. Bring money home. Hoping that by the time they got to the bus, The superinflation had not made the bus ride home too expensive. It was in that crisis that the Central Zimbabwe Conference came to their pastors and said, We are very sorry, but we can no longer pay you. There would be no shame in you finding another job if you can find one. Of their 24 pastors, not one of them quit. And I looked at the pastor and I said, because you have to understand, in, in our American, even, even the poor of our country are rich in comparison with many of these countries. And I asked the pastor, how did you survive? How did you survive? And his answer was simple. The Lord provides. And then he told me this story. They were going to be having a camp meeting. And when you have camp meeting, camp meeting is characterized by a couple of different things. A lot of preaching and a lot of eating. (laughs) And so you need to feed people. But how do you feed people when you have no money? So there was a group of about three or four pastors and they were riding along down a road and, and the local people in Zimbabwe, I, 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 this is not my reflection. This is what they said. So I'm conveying what they said. Uh, the, re- the, the way that police are able to catch drunk drivers is if they're driving straight down the road. Some of you got that. The reason for that is, is there are potholes everywhere and those who are sober have to, are weaving around them. It's, it's, it's registering slowly, Junior. The glucose from, the, from, from breakfast is, 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 is given the brain and is coming now. So these three pastors are driving in their car and they're following an 18-wheeler. And in this 18-wheeler, as they're going down the road, this 18-wheeler hits a pothole. And when it hits a pothole, a box comes flying out of the 18-wheeler. And they, and they, and they pull up to the box and they put it in their car and they speed up to try to catch up to give the man back his box that he lost. And just as they're about to catch the 18-wheeler, it hits another pothole and a box comes out. And they put the box in their car and they speed up and they speed up and they try to get up to the 18-wheeler and just as about there, they hit another pothole and another box falls out. This happens 10 times. And the 10th time in their car, which by all earthly and logical and rational abilities is faster than the 18-wheeler. No matter how fast they went, the 18-wheeler kept going further and further away until it disappeared in the horizon. What's the number one question you have? What's in the box, right? So they open up the boxes and in those ten boxes they have what is called mealy meal. ground corn. They make this dish called sadza. It's kind of the equivalent of a cornmeal porridge that's really, really thick that you eat your vegetables with. Why is that? Because God says, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. God will provide. And my dear friends, if we're not able to trust God now, and some of you say it's not an easy time, compared to what Jacob's time of trouble will be and the last and final conflict, this which we're walking through today is a piece of cake. But when it comes down to the issue of your life, Jesus is also very clear. Do not fear those who kill the body. This is Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. What's the point? Fear God alone. Fear God alone. We are living in a time where there's a lot of fear. Somebody coughs next to us, and we wonder if we've been infected. If you're on an airplane and someone sneezes, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm taking out my hand sanitizer. And you know, in the fear that exists, and listen, I'm just, I'm being very open with you. I don't just use hand sanitizer on my hands. You know, you put it on your hands and then you're wiping your face with it and fear. And by the way, I'm not telling us to be careless. Okay, let's be clear. COVID's real. People really die. It's a real disease. But let us also be very clear. I'm neither anti vaccine nor pro vaccine. I will tell you what I am. I am pro freedom of conscience and liberty of choice. Let us be clear on that. Do we fear God alone? Because if we fear anything other than Him, we will make terrible choices today that will certainly lead to our demise in the final crisis. Ellen White says these words in the Great Controversy, page 379. The first angel's message of Revelation 14, announcing the hour of God's judgment and calling upon men to fear and worship Him, Listen carefully now. Was designed to separate the professed people of God from the corrupting influences of the world and to arouse them to see their true condition of worldliness and backsliding. In this message, God has sent to the church a warning which had it been accepted would have corrected the evils that were shutting them away from him. Had they received the message from heaven humbling their hearts before the Lord and seeking in sincerity a preparation to stand in his presence, the spirit and power of God would have been manifest among them the church would again have reached that blessed state of unity faith and love which existed in apostolic days when the believers were of one heart and of one soul and spake the word of God with boldness when the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved what might have been let us not in the 21st century make the same mistake that happened in the 19th century We talk about the latter rain. The latter rain will not pour on people who have a divided conscience over who they serve. The latter rain will pour out and be poured out on a church that is not united by policy but is united by their fear of God alone. Do we fear God alone? In closing... John Witherspoon, a Scottish-American Presbyterian minister and one of the founding fathers of the United States and one of the signators of the Declaration of Independence said this, It is only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. Who is it that we fear? Who is it that we fear? What is it that you fear? What is it that keeps you from fearing God alone? In the final crisis, money's not going to help you. In the final crisis, you don't have enough power to stand. In the final crisis, your position is not going to help you. In the final crisis, your car is not going to make any bit of difference. In the final crisis, there will be one thing that stands above all else. Do you fear God alone? And when we fear God alone, like we will join the 144,000 who stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Are you willing to make a decision today to fear God alone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of stuff that we can trust. the psalmist wrote some trust in chariots and some trust in horses but we we will trust in the lord heavenly father i pray right now that the holy spirit would convict each and every heart of those things or thing that we are reliant upon that is not you whether it be money whether it be a relationship whether it be material things, whether it be ideologies, whether it be theories and philosophies, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would convict us right now and as we are convicted, that we would lay it at the altar of sacrifice and yield it over to you, that then there would be nothing between us and you. Lord, we want to be a part of that mighty throng that stands in the last day. But we don't want to just stand in the last day. We want to stand today. So give us the courage. Give us the confidence. And may we fear you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.